Thank you, Maddie. And thank you for all of your cat sitting in the past. So I'm opening up the slideshow now before I get started talking so I don't get confused by my tech. Can y'all see the slideshow? Yes, cool, awesome. Well, hello, friends, old and new. Um, thank you, Maddie, for that introduction. Thank you to everyone of the leadership team of the Open Table and everyone who's present tonight for um, letting me be here. I love the Open Table and what y'all are up to and um, the amazing work that y'all are doing. And so it's an honor to be present in any capacity, much less to be honoring or to be leading um, and chatting about something that I am very excited to chat about. So thank you. Uh, Maddie just gave a little bit of my biography. You'll hear a little bit more about me through this conversation because um, as we're talking about people who are like saints to us, um, some of our personality is going to come out. So you'll hear a bit more about me tonight. Um, but tonight for our time, I want to look at the life and legacy of a woman who is like a saint to me. Her name is Jane Shaberg. Um, and in doing so, we'll end up looking at uh, the legacy of another woman who is an uh, important official saint of Christianity, St. Mary Magdalene. So um, my goal tonight is twofold. Um, first, I just want to share about Jane Shaberg. I think she she's a Catholic feminist biblical scholar whose life and work are amazing. Um, and I think more people need to know about her. So I'm excited for the chance to be a part of sharing about her tonight. Um, but in talking about her life and legacy, um, I want to offer some tools from her work, from feminist biblical scholarship, um, and from her life that help might help us think about our own relationship with Christianity and how we read the Bible. So I'm excited. Buckle in. I have a lot for us tonight, but I think it'll be fun. Um, so for a little roadmap of where we'll be for the next like 45 minutes, hour, something like that, um, I'm going to offer a couple things just uh, as an introductory setting to conjure up the context for our conversation tonight. Um, and then we'll spend a few minutes looking at Shaberg, Jane, Jane Shaberg's biography, just some of who she was, um, before looking at her work and some of her scholarship, um, before moving to look at what it means for us and our faith today. So I'm excited. If anything seems too dense tonight, I don't intend for y'all, like, you don't have to remember everything that gets said tonight. That's not the goal. I'm just hoping that something, one, two, maybe three things um, out of Shaberg's life and bi biography and her work stick out and shine and uh, speak to you tonight. So I want to get started with a little selection of Jane Shaberg's writing. Um, it comes from an essay and a book of her, a collection of essays that she has put together. Um, a lot of them are pretty academic essays, but the beginning of each section, she starts out with a autobiographical prelude and a poem. She was a poet as well as a scholar. So um, this little excerpt is called Breaking the Silence. It's an excerpt from a sermon she preached in 2005. Um, some of it I have up on the screen so you can follow along if you'd like. Um, but yes, it reads, I've never given a sermon before, never been asked to, never been allowed to. I am a member, at least I say I am, of the Roman Catholic Church, 1.1 billion strong, that does not ordain women and does not permit women to, to preach. Aside from this prohibition, I'm also a feminist biblical scholar. We are seen as man-hating, male-bashing, family-destroying, whose scholarship is biased, subjective, too optimistic, just plain wrong, not worth reading or debating, in addition, I am one of those currently not permitted to lecture or be honored at Catholic institutions and who is unwelcome also at some other institutions. I mentioned this not just because giving a sermon is a novelty for me, but because the first thing that came to mind in preparing it was silence, or rather silencing. I was and am tempted to end right here, just to go sit down and let us listen to the silence of millions of women, hear the boiling up of their ideas, their interpretations, their genius, their frustration, their hopes, their questions, all unspoken. What is it that many women want to say that is so unwelcome? Well, for one thing, that most of the women and children alive today will live and die in poverty, that we do not want this sort of world, that we must act to change it. She continues, inside the silence though, there is this buzzing, this laughing, this murmuring. When the official voices cease or at least cease their domineering cant, we can hear better the bird song, the traffic, the wind, our own breathing and our beating hearts. We can hear something of the past that was not silenced and something happening in our own very interesting, crucial time. We hear some shifting, some cracking open, maybe, hopefully, some great joy present and future. So that little 
excerpt of her sermon kind of acknowledges that Jane Shaberg knew she lived in an interesting relationship with her own Christianity, especially as a member of the Catholic Church. Um, and tonight, I hope we'll see that um, the ways in which she skirted the boundaries of true Christianity um, might inspire us to think in new ways about our own relationship with Christianity, um, whether we're inside, outside, or somewhere in between. So to before we move on, I want to do a little like icebreaker activity of sorts um, to get some get some of y'all talking and to like set the scene a little more. So I am sure many of us have at some point or another heard someone say that's not Christian about something else. So I'm curious, I'd love to hear from a few of y'all. You can throw something in the chat or unmute yourself and say something. What's something that you have been told isn't Christian? You might agree with it, you might not agree with it, but what's something you've heard someone say that ain't Christian? Poetry, my poetry, art school, pop music. I hear that. Black Lives Matter more art yeah i would say in like eighth grade um i love the band green day and that was i was definitely told that that was not christian so we broke the cassette tape I, we run over it with a car so there you go there's one it's like a bold <laughs> stance against that nat christian band that's um, all american rejects was the band my dad told me was not christian when i got their cd in eighth grade reproductive white rights not christian same-sex marriage, nose rings. What do nose rings have anything to do with our faith and belief in God? I don't know. Tattoos, yeah, they're not too Christian. It's a little more biblical though. Being impolite, challenging the status quo, like racism, reading anything with a witch, unless it's the line, the witch in the roared robe. Somehow that's Christian when Harry Potter's not. That makes a little more sense. Cool. Well, I'm sure we can think of millions of more things. The irony to me now is if I hear the, someone say that ain't Christian, I'm going to think they're saying like white supremacy or like hoarding wealth, because those are the things that aren't Christian to me now, except most of the time people were more likely to say Black Lives Matter isn't Christian or socialism isn't Christian, something like that. That's I'm, I was curious to see what y'all would say to that question, because I, I there's like whenever we start to think that list kind of shows that there is no one rubric for what is truly Christian, what's not. There's a lot of contradictions, like liking certain bands that may not be Christian while I'm sure other bands who aren't Christian are just as cool or um, things like art school isn't Christian, but other forms of creativity might be or all sorts of stuff. I think as we start to explore this question, we start to see that there's like an irrationality and how a lot of people talk about what is and isn't Christian. Um, but this question, what it meant to be truly Christian, is there something that is or is not Christian was at the forefront of my mind when I started my time at Bright Divinity School um, for seminary. So there's a pretty little picture of Bright Divinity School on the screen now. Um, I remember when I started, I was really like, interested in figuring out what is and isn't Christian, like who gets to decide what real Christianity is? Does it matter if one's Christianity is orthodox or not? Like what, what do we do with the people who say that they are the authorities over these matters. So, so Maddie said, I grew up in a non-denominational evangelical church in suburban Memphis, Tennessee, where we were pretty sure we had Christianity figured out. Like we may not have always said it out loud, but we knew that we were real Christians and others weren't because we were born again. We believed Jesus was going to take us to heaven when we died. And other people like those progressive Christians, especially may say they're Christian, but we knew that they weren't. And it's actually really ironic. I was in high school visiting Texas Christian University where my friend was at school and that's where Bright Divinity School is housed. We were walking by this building when I was like 17 and she was like, Tyler, you should go to school here. You can go to Bible school there. I remember being like, Alex, that's a good idea, but that school is not really Christian. They're progressive. They can't really be Christian. Like six years later, I ended up going to school there. God works in mysterious ways. Um, but yes, when I started school, I was really bent on finding out what it meant to like, if there was such thing as a true Christianity. Um, so while I grew up non-denominational evangelical, I had found the disciples world, which TCU and Fort or Bright Divinity School or uh, Disciples of Christ schools. That's my denomination. Um, I'd come to that world after a couple years of deconstruction. Um, it all started out with coming out as gay. Um, so I spent a couple years really questioning my own faith, my own life, like rethinking everything, dabbling with 
Pentecostals and some Quakers and everything in between um, before moving to Bright, really willing to just find whatever answers I could find. Um, I knew that I had to be suspicious of the notion of true Christianity because I had been told that true Christianity didn't have space for what I was seeing was true within myself about my queerness um, and my attachment to my faith. I knew I was still some sort of Christian, even though I was queer. And most people around me, at least that time in my life, told me I could not be both. Um, and when I, in my studies and in my time in seminary, I studied a lot that helped me move forward um, from this question, but Jane Shaberg's work in particular um, really modeled something for me, both in how she handled this suspicion of true Christianity and how she was willing to keep an audacious and defiant insistence on her space within Christianity. Even though she knew most people would have written her out of Christianity, she knew that she still belonged. Um, and I'll share with you now one of my favorite quotes by Jane Chaber that kind of articulates um, this suspicion and this tension that she lives in. So she says, standing at the margins, women have tended to learn in their bones that much dogma is bunk, that most power is pocket that life's great treasures are simple things like a decent home and large doors of affection. Bunk, religious studies is the study of bunk. She continues to say that feminist scholars in growing numbers across the globe have studied this bunk, exposed it, discussed what is of value in its traditions and have both found and created alternatives. And so, Jane Shaberg's life and work really helped me to find beauty in the bunk of religious history and religious studies and within theology and studying the Bible, um, and especially with something that she calls Magdalene Christianity that we'll end up looking at tonight. So I'm going to move some from more of the ethereal to just some of the information, the biography of Jane Shaberg. So Jane Duar Shaberg was actually born right down the street, right down I-70 in St. Louis, Missouri, um, where I believe she grew up. We, I don't know too much about her. Uh, childhood or anything, but she ended up moving to New York City for college. Um, she went to Manhattanville College and stayed for her master's in systematic theology at Columbia. Um, then she did a PhD in biblical studies at Union. So I like Union Theological Seminary a lot. She runs in a good crowd, in my opinion. Um, and somewhere around the time that she graduated, she actually took oaths and became a nun. Um, but we'll see, she didn't last too long, but she had some major social and ethical issues and ended up leaving that. But um, a few years after her PhD. She moved to Detroit um, in 1977 to teach at University of Detroit Mercy, a private Catholic school there, beautiful campus. Um, and she taught as professor of religious studies and women's studies until she retired in 2009. Um, so she was there for 32 years, her entire career. Um, and she died a few short years after her retirement, after a long relationship with cancer. Um, and we'll see how both her uh, doing her work in Detroit as a biblical scholar and her experience with cancer kind of colored some of her scholarship. Um, but the, she's best known for two books in particular. One is The Illegitimacy of Jesus, a feminist theological interpretation of the infancy narratives. The second is The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene, Legends, Apocrypha, and the Christian Testament. Both of these we will briefly look at later. Um, but when I was kind of doing some research to see how Jane Chaber talked about herself, I found a very interesting interview in which she called herself a fun-loving scholar. Um, so in this interview, someone asked her, how do you describe yourself? And she said, a fun-loving scholar, but her discipline is usually not fun-loving, though it could become so. Um, so impressed, she responded to say that the discipline of biblical studies has traditionally been very focused on exactitude and correct methodology. There are some fun-loving people in it and some who tweak the establishment, but um, she talks about how she knew that like a lot of people weren't really having fun with biblical interpretation, at least in the academic world. Um, and she sought to mix the hard work of like historical critical scholarship with the fun of finding new and creative and more liberative ways of reading the Bible. Um, later on in this interview, she's asked if she thinks if the Bible is outdated for to inspire people for justice, a question I'm sure many of us have. Um, and she responds and says, no, it's not outdated. It's great literature. She says, we see new things in it generation after generation, and that's what makes it great. Not floating the Bible as a banner over various positions, but seeing the Bible itself as a site of conflict looking at how scriptural interpretation is conditioned by social location and how it serves political functions. So Jane Shaberg really believed that we can have fun with scripture once we start to name how we come at it from our own social location um, and what like political implications it carries both in the text and how we read and interpret it. 
Um, so she really loved the Bible and had a lot of fun with it. Though sometimes her fun with biblical interpretation wasn't fun for others. Um, the powers that be really found it flagrant. She was pretty outspoken about her social and political beliefs, uh, causing a lot, creating a lot of attention and sometimes causing trouble, especially being one of the only women faculty at her Catholic university. Um, there's an article that commemorated Jane Schaberg after she passed that sums it up well when uh, the author says, to understand Schaeberg, you needed to know that she brought pro-abortion speakers to address students at the University of Detroit Mercy where she taught. She was a member of the group Catholics for a Free Choice and the National Organization of Women. She was a former nun who had renounced the faith of her youth to follow the path of Gnosticism. She considered Virginia Woolf to be her greatest mentor. So, she was an eclectic woman with an eclectic faith who stood both in and outside of official Christianity. Um, but I want to take a shift now from her biography um, more to some of her scholarship out of which her biography will continue to unfold um, so that we can look at what she has to offer us who might be wrestling with our own relationship with Christianity and how we might read the Bible. So. We're going to look tonight at a little bit of the material in both of the books I just mentioned, The Illegitimacy of Jesus and The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene. They're both like kind of dense academic texts with also kind of simple theses. So I'm hoping um, you'll get something out of the overview of them because I can't go through all the details tonight. Um, but before I get there, I want to introduce a concept um, that feminist biblical scholars talk about that will help us um, kind of learn more about the work that Jane Schaeberg did. So I want to clarify, as I talk about feminist biblical interpretation, I'm not just talking about like any feminist reading the Bible, but a certain like subset that you find in academic theology. So um, starting in the 70s, 80s, there were a lot of scholars who started like writing and publishing, talking about feminist biblical scholarship. Um, and it's really grown over the past few decades. Um, it is a lot of white women, um, and, but a lot of them seek to be uh, very uh, intersectional in their work and uh, especially the past couple of decades, uh, feminist biblical scholarship has kind of expanded beyond just feminism. Um, but one of the main goals of feminist biblical scholars, uh, Elizabeth Schuchler Fiorenza, I'll talk about her in a second, um, was really inspired by Bell Hooks and Bell Hooks feminism is for everybody. So feminist biblical scholarship seeks to be like an emancipatory lens to read the Bible for anybody, whether or not you're a woman. Um, you'll see a lot the feminist biblical scholars when they say women, they say W-O slash M-E-N um, to highlight not just people on a certain half of a gender binary, um, but to talk about and look for interpretations that benefit all of those who um, lose power in a patriarchal system. So they really seek to be um, intersectional and liberative for anybody reading from any social location. Um, so yes, and they seek to blend the academic with accessibility, as I'm kind of trying to do tonight. But one of the classic strategies for feminist biblical interpretation is this thing called an hermeneutics of remembering and reconstruction. So some big words, the word hermeneutics is a big word. I don't really like it. A lot of biblical scholars do. It just means like interpretation, hermeneutics is interpretation. So this is an interpretive strategy for how feminist biblical scholars read the Bible. Um, and this strategy acknowledges that what we know of history is only a certain part of the story. I'm sure all of us are aware that our history is told to us often by those who win, often by the victors, and thus in our world, those victors have often been men. Any feminist biblical scholarship will start out talking about how the Bible is an andocentric text. Andocentric is a fancy word for male-centered. Um, so when we read the Bible, as good and beautiful as it is, we know that it is written by men, for men, with men as most of the main characters, and women really on the margins and the periphery. Um, so feminist biblical scholars, feminist biblical scholars address this um, and know there are hidden histories of sorts of women by women with women and others without power but with some creative and careful scholarship we might remember and reconstruct we might like bring those hidden histories out into the light um, so a lot of this hermeneutics of remembering and reconstruction comes from a book called Wisdom Ways, uh, Introducing Feminist Biblical Scholarship by Elizabeth Schuchler Fiorenza. If you're curious about like a good primer on feminist biblical scholarship, this is the book I would recommend. Um, it's an incredible text. She talks about how our relationship with the Bible should be like that of a dance. So it's not as straightforward we're reading the Bible and gaining truth from it, but we dance with the Bible and out of that truth emerges in our relationship and our conflict 
with it. Like James Shabrook says, the Bible is a site of conflict and thus a site rife with potential for transformation if we learn to dance with it and read it. Um, so that's the main ethos of this book. Um, but this is one of the particular strategies, one of the particular dances we might do with scripture, this hermeneutics of remembering and reconstruction. So James Shaberg says that this approach understands that history is not a transcript or report of what actually happened, um, but history is a remaking and retelling of reality without being reality itself. Um, and this approach of remembering and reconstruction seeks to recover the forgotten past, both of women's victimization and of their struggles for survival and well-being. So if history is not reality itself, just one version of reality, and if what we have in the Bible is only a partial picture of what was actually going on around the beginning of Christianities and the stories of our ancestors of faith, feminist biblical interpretation seeks to find ways to reconstruct new sides of that history or new stories within that history, uncovering the hidden stories so that we can see more fully the presence and role of women in the Bible in early Christianity and as we remember and reconstruct this, we might find fresh significance for our faith today. So if you're familiar with the Jewish practice of Midrash and how like the Midrashic approach to the Bible, feminist biblical scholarship always talks about how it's super similar in ethos. And Elizabeth Schuchler Ferenza quotes a Midrashic scholar who says that the Bible is um, more like a palette of colors that an artist uses to create a painting, but it is not the painting itself. So the Bible is like the palette that we use to paint the pictures of truth, to paint the stories of faith that enliven our lives and our day-to-day -day and in our community, but it is not the painting itself. Um, and so we, this history that we have is not the full picture, but we can use it to uncover cover the full story that we want to tell in our faith and our life. Um, and who we believe God to be. So I think it goes without saying that feminist biblical scholarship has a very different notion of biblical authority than some conventional Christianities might. The Bible is not the inerrant word of God in this framework, um, but rather something much more dynamic and I think potent for transformation and encountering God. Um, it's a lot more decentralized notion of biblical authority um, in which the Bible doesn't itself guarantee that we're gonna encounter God, but in this dance with it, in this relationship with it, um, we might encounter God and truth and find new ways to justice. So to help kind of uh, like unpack this paradigm, this hermeneutics of, uh, of remembering and reconstruction, I want to look at a certain text that's kind of controversial in the New Testament that presents this issue and why we need an hermeneutic like this, at least in my opinion. So towards the end of the first letter to the Church of Corinth in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he offers a bunch of instructions on how churches should worship. He's telling them how they should structure things, what they should do. And in the middle of 1 Corinthians 14, we find this little line in parentheses. Because it's in parentheses, some people think it was added later and the Apostle Paul didn't actually say this, but someone edited it into the letter. Regardless, it's in most of our Bibles and it's something we need to wrestle with. So 1 Corinthians 14 verses 33 through 34 say in parentheses, as in all of the churches of the saint, women's, uh, saints, women should be silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate as the law also says. So what do we do with this verse? I'm wondering, what have you been told about this verse? If you want to throw a message in the chat or unmute yourself, what have you been told about this verse in your own experience? Um, I've been told that it was addressed to a specific group of women um, for specific reasons because they were being disruptive, not as a blanket statement for women um, not preaching or speaking in the church. Someone said in the chat, just ignore it. It's culturally bound. Yeah. I eventually got that same message as uh, Latia, like, but like very, but for a long time, no, like the interpretation of that was like women don't preach, women don't lead. They can run the nursery rooms and children's church and that's it. Like, awesome. but event eventually someone clued me in on, on um, the good reverends uh stuff and then i was like oh okay but yeah for a while now <laughs> mm -hmm. i see someone in chat saying that i've been told that the only place i can serve is the daycare or that women shouldn't be head pastors also that it's just historical 
That's yeah. I think my church growing up read this as like, okay, well, women can talk, but they can't hold authority over men. So it's like my youth pastor who was a woman could be a youth pastor for middle school, but not for high school because they were a little too old and she couldn't baptize us, but she was more of a pastor than any of the male youth pastors I had. Yeah. So there are a lot of different ways in which we might interpret this. I think like my church growing up just kind of ignored it without having any real conversation. While a lot of us have some really real conversations and find ways to contextualize it and historicize it. Um, but Elizabeth Schuchler Ferenza in this book, Wisdom Ways, uses this verse as a way to introduce the need for a feminist interpretive paradigm for reading scripture, one in which the Bible is more than revelation or fact or history or even the good book. And, and, and its inspiration. Um, she says that without a paradigm that's like about remembering and reconstructing, we kind of have two options with this verse and others like it in the New Testament that we can read it and say, well, this is actually the Christian way of doing things. This is what God wants. And we should probably like not let women talk in churches, or we can look at it and understand that it's an outdated part that we can ignore now. Um, it's a contextual verse applying to certain people, but not all people, um, or just like it's something that we can like let go in the passage of time. We've evolved past it. We know better than Paul did in those churches. And we know more that women are actually humans just like men are. Um, so we kind of have the two things. We can either kind of explain it away or we have to listen to it. But Elizabeth Schlusler-Ferenza talks about how the hermeneutics of remembering and reconstruction goes a step further and sees this verse and others like it as a sign of some alternate and untold story of what was going on in the church. So they say if Paul needed to say this in his letter to the Corinthian church, or if someone else felt the pressure to put this into the letter to the Corinthian church, it means that women were speaking, they were teaching, they weren't staying silent. Maybe they were rowdy and not necessarily speaking good things, but maybe they were and Paul or whomever just had a problem with it because of their disagreements. Um, and so this feminist attempt at remembering and reconstructing wouldn't just say, we don't need to listen to this anymore, but they would look at this and be like, okay, so there were women preaching and teaching and speaking and asking questions. What might these women have been saying and teaching and asking? And what does that mean for our Christianity today? So this hermeneutic of reconstructing and remembering looks at this verse and wants to know what those women were saying and wants to know what we might learn from what they had to say about the risen Christ in their midst and their experience of first-generation Christianity. There's actually some incredible scholarship that does this for the Corinthian women. Jane Schaberg writes a bit about who the Corinthian women might have been and what they may have been saying that Paul was so pissed off about. Um, and there's actually an incredible book called um, The Corinthian Woman Prophets, by Antoinette Wire, in which she looks at the entire book of 1 Corinthians and does a very thorough reconstruction of what these Corinthian women might have said about Jesus that was contra what Paul was saying about Jesus um, and suggests that we might kind of rethink some of Pauline's uh, Christianity and lean into more what these Corinthian women were saying in this church. So I would love to talk for more or for hours about the Corinthian women's book of Corinthians. It's like my favorite because of this tension. Um, but I want to move now to the two books that I want to look at from Jane Shaber that use the same hermeneutic of reconstructing, reconstructing and remembering, um, both with the stories of Jesus' conception and Mary Magdalene's legacy for the church. So before we move on, are there any questions about this remembering and reconstructing and this like logic, the strategy, this dance that we're doing with the scripture. Ellen, I see you in chat. That's, we can get coffee sometime and talk about that book because I'm happy to geek out about it. Cool. So any more questions, feel free to throw them in chat. Um, so I want to just briefly introduce the first book that I want to look at from Jane Shaber, The Illegitimacy of Jesus. Um, then we'll move on to The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene, which has a little more potency for us thinking about our faith today. Um, a quick trigger warning, as we talk about the illegitimacy of Jesus, I'll talk a bit, not in depth, but about sexual assault and rape. It's um, part of the story that Jane Chaberg sees in these. Um, so if you're not in a place right now where you are comfortable having a conversation about sexual assault, please feel free to take a couple minutes to yourself. Um, we should be on to the next subject in three minutes or so. 
Um, so wanted to give that trigger warnings. But the book, The Illegitimacy of Jesus, was the first major book Jane Shaberg published that used this hermeneutics of remembering and reconstructing. Um, she published it in 1985, and in it, she looks at the stories of Mary's pregnancy in Matthew and Luke and uses this approach of remembering and reconstructing um, to argue that the canonical narratives in Matthew and Luke independently transmit a tradition that Jesus was conceived normally, not miraculously, while his mother was a betrothed virgin, possibly by a rape since the texts allude to the rape law of Deuteronomy 22. Jane Schaeberg proposes that a nugget of theology is still visible in these Christian Testament texts, that God stands by the endangered woman and child. So this book has some of the like most precise and nimble like biblical exegesis, biblical interpretation that I've ever seen. It is amazing work. Um, and in it, she looks at the stories that we have of Jesus' conception, um, which we only have two. Matthew 1 and Luke 1 are the only parts in the New Testament that talk about Jesus being born to a virgin. And those were two of the later texts written in the New Testament. Like all of the letters, like Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, those were all written beforehand. None of them mentioned the virgin birth. And then Mark, the first gospel, doesn't mention it either. Um, so there's some question about like what this meant to the early church. Um, and Jane Schaberg, uses that conversation and looks at the traces and Matthew 1 and the genealogy and how Mary fits into that and Luke 1 and the scene in which Mary and her cousin Elizabeth are kind of freaking out because all of a sudden Mary's pregnant. Um, and she brings up this suppressed tradition in which the story was that Mary, that Jesus was an illegitimate child, but God um, reclaimed the situation saying that God was present in that in a time in which anybody, Jewish, Roman, anybody would have written off Mary and Jesus as unclean for being victims of something they didn't even do. Um, so it's incredible work. I would love to speak more about the like logic that she does to it. Um, but she argues that this isn't necessarily like the historical fact, um, but it's important to reconstruct this narrative because it offers a fresh and liberative um, reading of the stories of Mary's conception or Jesus' conception. Um, and she says that the reading that she offers makes more precise the claim that Mary represents the oppressed to have been liberated. In this case, there is subversion of the patriarchal family structures. The child conceived illegitimately is seen to have value, transcendent value in and of himself, not in his attachment and that of his mother to a biological or legal father. Mary is a woman who has access to the sacred outside of the patriarchal family and its control. This illegitimate conception turns out to be grace, not disgrace, order within disorder, on the basis of a belief in the Holy Spirit who empowers the conception of Jesus and his resurrection and who creates and elects all a community as believed possible. So in this book, Schaeberg talks about how those of us craving to build a community outside, free from the structures of oppression we see in patriarchy and all of the interlocking systems of domination that are real in our world. This story of God, of the Holy Spirit, um, like being present through this illegitimate conception offers a liberating story of like God making clean something that people say is unclean. Um, and so Shane Schaeberg wasn't just trying to rile people up with this. She saw this like interpretation is good news. And, and then it started to become news, but to many people became bad news. So after she published this book, she started doing some interviews. Um, she was on a BBC documentary about um, the Virgin Mary in which she talked about this work. She started getting a lot of press and pretty quickly that press became really bad press. So the BBC program was protested by hundreds of people for this claim that she made. Um, and as she, this book became more and more well known in the 80s and 90s. She began to get a lot of hate mail to her office and to her home. Um, she was really shunned by a lot of the academic community. She was one of the only women faculty at her school. People didn't really come to defend her, even when the threats started pouring in. She lost a lot of privileges and opportunities professionally. A lot of, she talks a lot in her writing about how this book really stunted her career and like kind of pigeonholed her. And she, she was at the University of Detroit Mercy for the rest of her life for this reason. Um, and then it, it became physical danger too. Um, at some point, her car was firebombed overnight by someone who was mad that she was proposing this alternative reading of the conceptions of Jesus. Um, and she talks, she has an essay called Feminism Lashes Back, in which she talks about all of the backlash that she got and says that um, the story goes on and on. It makes me queasy to tell it. I have not fully processed the jumble of emotions, embarrassment, shame, which I'm embarrassed to have, and anger are primary. 
Um, and then she talks a lot about the hate mail that she got and how as much as it shook her to her core, it also helped validate the need and importance of this remembering and reconstruction that she was doing. She talks about her personal favorite note that she got in the backlash was this note that said, you are associating Mary with the lowest of the low, as if that was a bad thing when that's exactly what she was doing because in that she saw a God who redeems, who promotes a world of justice, who offers a way forward to those who are set the lowest of the low in the world. And so she struggled because of this. It shook her to her core and it's powerful to read some of her like uh, confessional uh, writing about her experience in the wake of this, but she didn't let it stop her. She was shaken, but she was still resilient. Um, and she continued to work in doing this remembering and reconstruction and her career really took her to move from the story of Mary and Jesus conception to the role of Mary Magdalene in the New Testament and the beginning in the Christian origins and who she might be to us now. Um, so her second major book came out in 2002 this book called The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene, Legends, Apocrypha, and the Christian Testament. She does a lot of stuff in this book. Um, she looks at the stories of Mary Magdalene in the Christian Testament or the New Testament. She looks at the stories in the ancient texts that we know as Apocrypha, Apocrypha or Gnostic texts. There's a lot of like pseudo biblical texts that were passed around in early Christianity that didn't make it into our Bible, but are still worth reading. She reads those. One is the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Um, so she looks at all of that and she looks at the evolution of the myth around Mary Magdalene and who she was, um, all to remember and reconstruct a more full image of Mary Magdalene um, and a suggestion of what Magdalene Christianity might have been. So before we move on, I have a quick question or maybe not that quick, but what do you know about Mary Magdalene? I want to hear like what facts, like when I say Mary Magdalene, what do you, what stories, what images, like who is Mary Magdalene in your mind? Um, send me something in the chat or unmute yourself and who is Mary Magdalene from what you know? Apostle to the apostles. Yes. The first missionary. I've heard that before. I forgot about that one. <laughs> This book talks a lot about the Da Vinci Code and she she's like, I get it. It's it's curious, but she does not like what it does uh, to the myth of Mary. So healed of seven demons. Yes, that's biblical. We have evidence of that. Cool. So um, I meant to include a photo of this in my slideshow, but I didn't. So if you go to the Nelson Atkins and you're strolling around on the first floor in the Renaissance art, one of the most beautiful paintings there, in my opinion, is the Penitent Magdalene by El Greco, um, who was a Greek Renaissance artist. Um, and yes, yeah, so someone just said that Mary Magdalene wiped Jesus' feet with her hair and perfume. <gasps> Sarah Barrielis played her on TV. That changes things for me. I really need to go watch that. That's incredible. Continuing, um, the Penitent Magdalene is this beautiful painting and the gallery label talks about how Mary Magdalene was this repentant prostitute out of whom Jesus cast out seven demons and she washed, washed Jesus' hair, feet with her hair. She repented and received forgiveness and the painting is beautiful and Mary has this long blonde hair because, you know, Mary Magdalene was a white woman, of course. Um, and she's associated with this forgiveness and this repentance and her sexual background, being a repentant prostitute. But it turns out Mary Magdalene was none of those things. So if you look at the Bible, there are 12 verses in which Mary Magdalene is mentioned. 11 of them are at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then there's Luke 8, 2, in which she's introduced as one of Jesus' followers, out of whom seven demons had been cast. So Jane Shaberg spends like 100 pages in this book talking about how Mary Magdalene throughout the centuries became a conflation of all these different stories of women in the New Testament. So although she's one of the most talked about people in the New Testament, she's not talked about much at all. Um, but we have these stories of Jesus' feet getting washed and Jesus' head being anointed. Both of those stories are by women who aren't named. We, they're not given any name. But by like 500 CE, the Pope was saying that was Mary Magdalene. So people believe that. Um, and Jane Schaberg uses this a lot of this book to, un to disentangle that conflated myth to get back to who Mary Magdalene might have been. Um, and in this book, she kind of has three main themes. Um, her thesis, her like climax in this book is this chapter in which she talks about this tradition in which Mary Magdalene was the prophetic successor to Jesus. Um, so she looks at John 20, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, and then the story of Elisha and Elijah in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. 
um, in which she sees this tradition that's been suppressed in which Mary Magdalene was understood to be like Jesus 2.0, to have received the mantle of Jesus um, and to have been led to be his prophetic successor. Um, so she uncovers this and it's a pretty convincing argument, um, but throughout the whole book, she talks about may, that might not have been that common of a narrative. It may have been really peripheral, but we do know that there was a lot of people who talked about Mary Magdalene having authority in the early church. She was the apostle to the apostles. Um, so in this book, she talked about how Mary Magdalene was the first person to proclaim resurrection. She was the primary witness to the fundamental data of the Christian faith in all four of the gospels in the New Testament. Mary Mary Magdalene is the first one to find the tomb empty. And then John, um, she's the first one to encounter the risen Christ. And most like historical scholars believe that that's the most original narrative, that Mary Magdalene was the first person to say the Lord has risen. Um, so she emphasizes that Mary Magdalene is like the creator of the Christian faith. Um, and then she points towards evidence of people who held Mary Magdalene with a lot more esteem and authority in the early church, where Mary Magdalene would have been kind of parallel to Peter or Paul. And she reconstructs what she calls Magdalene Christianity as this early stream within Christianity that was squashed out, um, that was a lot more egalitarian, a lot more women-centered, um, and had different theologies of what resurrection meant um, for people's lived reality. So we'll look at that in a minute. But a lot of what she does in this book emphasizes Mary Magdalene's story as a story of presence in the midst of suffering and death. So she talks about how the stories that we do have in Mary Magdalene um, are not ones of a repentant prostitute, um, which is very careful not to shame like prostitutes and sex workers in this book. But she's she disentangles Mary's story from that and focuses how Mary is present with Jesus as he dies, as he is buried and has the tomb becomes empty. Um, she says, Mary Magdalene of the Christian Testament is the one who stands by the dying, wrongfully accused, executed. She fails to anoint at an empty tomb of the disappeared. Simply there, she becomes the place, the location, not just the symbol of the God who is thought to abandon, but does not abandon. She talks a lot about how Mary Magdalene is this image of presence and offers us this approach to Christianity that emphasizes this presence, especially to suffering and bodied realities. We well know that a lot of Christianity, especially Pauline Christianity, split the body and spirit. The flesh is bad, the spirit's good. Magdalene Christianity doesn't have that divide, Schaeberg says. Um, she talks about how important this is for her as someone who was doing biblical scholarship in Detroit. She spent a lot of her life um, doing Bible studies with people outside of the academy across Detroit and reading from that um, purview, that position. And she says, standing again at Golgotha in Detroit is a challenge not to turn away from suffering or from the body. It demands a resurrection faith that does not make the suffering all right, nor does it dole to injustice nor does it desensitize compassion or fear of death, but rather it leads us to action in spite of. She says each of us wishes for one like the Magdalene to go down with us into death, to stay with us to the end. I say this with cancer on my mind, remembering those I did not stay with until the end, those I love who died alone. More than that, she is the one who did not cease to love at the dead, who remembered. Reconstruction of her story may help us to stay, not to turn away. So she talks a lot about the, the reality of resurrection as being this radical presence in the midst of suffering and new life sprouting up, and even in the middle of death and decay. Um, and she does some fascinating work in this book. And then in some essays, she kind of expounds on it more to talk about what Magdalene Christianity might be, both the ancient Magdalene Christianity, what this early stream of Christianity might have been that got suppressed, that died out um, because of patriarchal orthodoxy, and what Magdalene Christianity might be for us today. Throughout this book, she, this book talks a lot about Virginia Woolf, which is really cool and I haven't gone into that much because I don't know as much about Virginia Woolf, but if you're an English major or something, you may be interested. She talks about how Virginia Woolf is similar to Mary Magdalene and calling for this religion of the outsiders. And she, she suspicious or is suspicious that Virginia Woolf would probably like Magdalene Christianity. But in this book and in her other writing, she kind of sums up what this early stream of Christianity might've been. She remembers and reconstructs Magdalene Christianity and says a few things about it. 
The first thing that she says is that in Magdalene Christianity, women spoke boldly with authority. She sees that Corinthian church and suspicious that a lot of them were probably influenced by Mary Magdalene. And she looks at Mary Magdalene who spoke boldly with authority and says that Magdalene Christianity values the boldness and authority of what women have to say about Christ and the resurrection and God. She also says that Magdalene Christianity centers mysticism and mystical experience, both contemplative and ecstatic experience. She really focuses on how Mary's experience at the empty tomb was a mystical experience in which truth found her in this vision um, and how Magdalene Christianity focuses on mysticism, on contemplation and ecstatic experience. And I think this is a good community to talk about contemplation and justice. So that's, that's kind of Magdalene in my opinion. Um, Jane Schaberg also talks about how in Magdalene Christianity, resurrection is a collective thing. Um, she talks about how uh, Magdalene Christianity does not believe that the resurrected Christ is an individual that's going to get us all to heaven when we die, but rather the resurrected Christ manifests in our collective space as we come together and we become a community embodying the things that Jesus talked about. Um, so resurrection is a collective reality, one that we share in, um, not one that we await in the future. It's about now, not about the future. So she also talks about how Magdalene Christianity finds eternity in the depth of the actual moment. So whereas some other early Christian ideas of eternal life were apocalyptic and expected eternal life to start after death or when Jesus came back, Magdalene Christianity was focusing more on the presence of God and it's the eternal pact into each moment. Rob Bell once said that eternal life is the divine depth of each moment. And I think that sums up this ethos really well. Um, and in doing all of this, she talks about how Mary Ma or Magdalene Christianity places Jesus alongside rather than above people. So instead of Jesus being the superhuman that we want to be like, but never can be, Jesus is put next to us, more our sibling, our brother. And this provides an alternative reality to the one that stresses obedience to an all-powerful being. So it's about God being with us, having power with us instead of power over us. Um, she talks a lot about how Magdalene Christianity then was more democratic, more egalitarian, um, more shared in its ethos. It wasn't hierarchical, but was more emergent, more shared, um, where everyone had a voice and their experience came to the church and to the group instead of Paul or one dude telling everyone how to do it. And lastly, she says that Magdalene Christianity was opposed and all but defeated in early Christianity. She talks about how people did their best to suppress the stream in early Christianity. We can barely catch sights of it today. But we can, we can see the traces of Magdalene Christianity. We see them um, in the Gospel of John in which Mary Magdalene's the first one to experience the resurrected Christ. We see them in these non-canonical texts like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Um, and I think we see them sprouting up in groups like this and churches that seek to do faith that's more collective, that's more mystical, that's less power over and more power with. Um, and she ends this book challenging us to embody what Magdalene, Magdalene Christianity might be, um, whatever we might end up calling it. Um, and I want to share the last quote in this book, um, in which she's talking about a conversation she's been, or a conversation she had with a colleague um, who helped her throughout writing this entire book, who talks and says that he could see what she's saying, especially about John 20 and Mary being the prophetic successor to Jesus, but he struggles to know if he should, if it's worth like entertaining this hypothetical reality. Um, but then he stammers and says, actually, I do think I should. All this, all this war, this waste, this, well, Magdalene Christianity, we, you have to invent it. Maybe it wouldn't have to be called Christianity, something new, something outside. I might even, yeah, I might even too, Jane responded. She proposed that Magdalene Christianity is something we can create as we, we remember and reconstruct um, the stories of early Christianity and revive, re resurrect these stories of Mary Magdalene and who she was in the early church and to the early church. Um, yeah, so this is kind of where I want to leave us. We're going to move to breakout rooms in a minute, which it's kind of an inconclusive ending, um, but this work is inconclusive. The task of feminist biblical scholarship and remembering and reconstructing is a task undone um, that we are all invited to do in this dance with scripture. Um, but as someone who has an ambiguous relationship with Christianity, I realized a few years ago that if someone walked up to me at a coffee shop and asked if I were Christian, I would be like, no. 
And I'll be like, oh, wait, yes, I am. What do you mean when you say Christian? I have an ambiguous relationship with Christianity because I know the baggage that it has. We've all, this group especially knows well, like Christianity has a bad or a marred history, um, especially right now as we're talking about how to move forward in this country. We need to reckon with Christianity's responsibility for white supremacy in this country. Um, as well as the misogyny and homophobia and everything that Christianity has not only participated in, but perpetuated. Um, but this work, this task of remembering and reconstructing and this like exercise in imagining what Magdalene Christianity might have been has helped me claim the identity as Christian. It showed me that it doesn't matter what true Christianity is, um, but it matters what we do and how we construct Christianity for ourselves and shows me that we can create a Christianity. We can participate in a Christianity or something maybe post-Christian or Christ like that's, we don't call Christianity anymore, but participate in this shared life of resurrection and eternal presence that we and our world crave, that we can use these stories of Jesus and his first followers and this movement that emerged out of his life, death, and resurrection, and we can find alternative realities um, that are more just um, in which we disentangle and we um, dismantle systems of oppression, in which we can create communities that are free and liberating for those involved. Um, I see so much of what we hope for in progressive Christian circles and progressive faith communities. I see what we want in this Magdalene Christianity. And I find it really important that we have this, this history that we can reconstruct as a resource for how we build our communities and our lives, lived within this mystical union with God's divine presence with us in each moment and this mysticism that propels us into justice. Um, and I find this as a huge resource for navigating what it means to be Christian in our world. So I want to give us some time to kind of reflect and unpack some of this um, in smaller groups. So I have some questions for us, but before we do that, I'm wondering if anybody has any questions for the big group that I can answer um, before we send off. Cool. Um, so I'll invite us to go into breakout rooms and I put together four questions for the closing conversation. Um, Emily, I'm gonna skip through, skip that John 20 part. Um, I was thinking about us reading to John 20, the passage in which Jesus encounters Mary Magdalene. I invite you to read that later and see what fresh insight you might get out of that. It's one of my favorite passages now. Um, but there are four, or, yeah, four questions um, that I'd love to reflect in small groups. So um, Emily, I'll let you share those questions with us. and whomever break us up into breakout rooms. Yeah, this is great, Tyler. It's a fire hydrant, but yeah, I spent a lot of time trying to refine it. So yeah, I believe this, this stuff doesn't belong in seminaries. It belongs in people's hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that's sticking with me again is like the Jesus with instead of Jesus over. So that's one thing that's, that's sticking with me again, because, you know, again, the, the kind of uh, tradition that I grew up in within Christianity was definitely very much emphasizing Jesus over like Jesus as King. Um, and that was the only way we saw Jesus. Uh, so that I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, and this like, because I, I that, that Jesus is king is in the New Testament. And so I think when I used to want to not believe it, I felt like I still kind of had to or admit that that's I'm like not a real Christian for that reason. Um, and so her work of like reconstructing and saying, no, this was actually early Christianity too. So healing. The, the last quote you shared, the yeah, I might even too. I like, I love in my, in my own writing with poems, I love to not finish thoughts. I feel like that's like half of it is to, to show how language can't hold up all the things we try to make it hold up. And yet at the same time, the, I, in the tradition I was brought in within Christianity, it was, this is the inerrant word of God. It's perfect. Nothing is wrong with this. This is the only way to interpret it. And suddenly with that, being clued into it it's it also is showing all the ways that it's, I, I don't know i'm picturing as i'm doing it's like picturing bread like crumbling in my mm. hands almost of like it's like the, there's nourishment in that crumbling though and there's there's like life there so the mm -hmm. um yeah i'm gonna be sitting with that 
that quite a bit. Um, yeah, and the power. The communion. I agree. As you talked about suspicion, what came to me is the hermeneutic of suspicion to always approach scripture, but any text or any like situation with that hermeneutic of suspicion, like things are not just one way. Like there's something uh, to always be weary of. And that's, yeah, uh, the Elizabeth Schuessler Forenza book talks a lot about that. It talks about how, like, the emotional baggage of that, too, and how we need to name that. That's, like, tough to be suspicious, especially about something that we're taught we can't, we're not supposed to be suspicious over, but that's what leads to freedom. I'm just thinking about how much in the past year that I have learned that like our history is so mm. not correct a lot of the times the way it's been recorded and taught and handed down. So it makes me, it makes me happy that um, there are people that do this work and go back and go, okay, let's look at this again. <laughs> let's, let's revisit this and, and see, you know, this might not be the greatest way that we've done this, you know? So just like, I'm so happy that people are doing this. And I, I like what you said when you're like, it needs to be in the hands of the people. <laughs> Cause I was like, if people knew, you know, this kind of stuff, it would be really, really great. So I'm excited. And it's just a relief always to hear Like the more people you hear say like, well, maybe the Bible isn't like this way or that way. Then you go, okay, cool. Like take a breath. This is great. Amen. Yeah, it's funny. It's like if I had been asked to do a saint series anytime, I probably would have chosen this because I love Jane Schaberg a lot. Um, but it's funny because you were talking about the Chiefs earlier. And whenever I think about football obsession, I'm like, well, I get obsessed with biblical scholarship to the same extent. But it's I like I'm just not putting together the potency of this like rethinking history when it is so our national conversation right now. And it's exactly what we're trying to do. And that was completely unintentional on my end. Spirit works in sneaky ways. You know, one, one of the questions that I have, Tyler, is um, just, I was just looking at this other one here. One, one question that I have is, I, I find that oftentimes it's, it's quite difficult, even with the interwebs, to come across biblical scholarship like yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes it's filled with, uh, a lot more it's filled with like more mainstream, like this is either dominant or nationalistic or, you know, what have you. Um, so, so if you, if you were to say like, Hey, I mean, I guess for anybody who's interested in, in the kind of biblical scholarship that was just talked about tonight or others, be it like queer theology, black liberation theology, those kinds of things, are there places that you would direct people to go in order to like, have like a treasure trove of these sorts of things um, to kind of pick through. I wish there was more. I think that's one reason I like jumped on this tonight and I'm teaching about Magdalene Christianity at my church tomorrow night. So kind of in conjunction with this, because no, there's not many great places to go, at least not that I know of. Um, There's some good books. I think that's, there's this collection, Searching the Scriptures of Feminist Commentary. That's like each book of the Bible has a commentary on it. It It's actually uh, edited by one of my professors, which I geek out about a little, but, um, and there's like some texts like this that are good go-to for unpacking this like every time I preach I read this first um but there's not a lot that's super accessible still probably someone could probably show me stuff that I have yet to find um but I think that's one of the things I really want to be a part of creating more because it's hard I did put the list of resources that you gave us in the chat here so some of those things at least the ones that you um, I put in there for people to uh, have. Nice. Appreciate it. Yeah. And I have a PDF of the slideshow too. I'm going to see if it'll let me upload that. <gasps> there we go. So if people want that as well. A lot of quotes. 
That's uh, like Elizabeth Schuessler Forenza. That's uh, feminism is for everybody. Talks a lot about by bell hooks. Talks a lot about like the conscious conscious raising groups, which I guess was more prevalent in the earlier waves of feminism. But where they were like people would get together and have small groups that pretty much unpacked like systematic sexism or systemic sexism, misogyny. Um, and she recommends doing the same thing like in small groups, having groups that read um, the dance with scripture in this way. And she like, it sounds like there's been people who have done these like feminist circles of reading scripture together um, in different places across the country. But that's an in-person thing that I, I don't know if it's online right now. Maybe some of us could start it, but. Tyler, could I ask you a personal question? Please. You, you talked about like your relationship with Jane Shaberg and how she's like meant so much to you but like when did you first find her work mm-hmm. and yeah like I guess like the initial like oh my yeah. god I uh Dr. Matt Shelly Matthews was my New Testament professor at Bright and she I took her like the first class I had at Bright was her New Testament course and she like introduced some of this work in that class and that's when I really started to be like had my interest peaked in both the illegitimacy of Jesus and the resur- resurrection of Mary Magdalene. Um, yeah. Cause I left that class being like, Oh, I like Mary Magdalene. Cause that Christmas I got an icon of Mary that still sits in my room, but I took a feminist interpretations of Luke class uh, in like 2017 in which we read both of these books. Um, and that's when I like dove in and I was like, this is, this is my thing. I like this a lot. So this was after like your deconstruction even and like when mm-hmm. you were at Brighton things. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. curious in the timeline of your story, which yeah. like, I know a little bit more probably than I know than folks tuning in. But uh, This was very much my reconstruction. There's a book called Bibli- The Bible Made Impossible by some Catholic, another Catholic scholar. That's the weird thing about my seminary experience. It came out like talking about Catholics more than anything else. Um, but The Bible Made Impossible talks about biblicism, which is how a lot of like Protestants read the Bible, they elevate it beyond what it is. Um, and that's what started my deconstruction. That was the first book I read as my evangelicalism was unraveling. Um, and so this was probably like the scholarship that kind of cemented my reconstruction. So I love the Bible for better or for worse. Cool, everybody is back. Awesome. So that, I have nothing else planned for us, but I would love to hear um, from the other breakout rooms, maybe one or two things that came up in y'all's conversation um, before we turn it over to the open table folk to close us. I don't know um, if I would be a good spokesperson for what our group talked about. We sort of jumped all over the place, but I did want to say, Tyler, that we all agreed that we could listen to you for hours. Well, I could talk about this for hours, so I'm glad that I... (laughs) Did it tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I did just oh go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, one of the things we were also talking about, I was in the group with with G and Marianne, and we were discussing um just how it was really helpful to have a new lens with which to read the Bible. Um because when you come from a tradition of maybe scripture as inerrant or just kind of all of the baggage around that and you open your Bible and you read it, you're like, I don't, what am I supposed to do with this? And then you just kind of close it and just put it away. (laughs) And so I think it was really like inspiring to maybe be able to return and have a different framework to think, think about it. Mm -hmm. I was telling a friend yesterday that I feel like I love the Bible more and more every day now. And I grew up in a church that like guilt tripped us if we didn't read the Bible every day and have our quiet time. I was reading the Bible every day all through high school and college and thought I loved it and I did it. But now I'm, cause I'm not scared of it anymore. I'm excited even about the things that I'm scared of in there. Uh, so, hi, I spoke a little bit in the break. I room. I uh, got in a little bit late. I was actually in the other room listening to this on uh, my earbuds. Um, but I spoke a little bit about like the baggage that I don't have uh, when it comes to reading the Bible. So I wasn't necessarily taught any specific way because I, um, I basically grew up Buddhist uh, by, because of my mother. Um, she's a Theravada Buddhist uh, from Southeast Asia and my father was Catholic, but he wasn't in the picture after a while. So that wasn't really part of my life, but I became a very staunch sort of like Richard Dawkins atheist uh, when I was in high school. Right. And I, I eventually fell into Catholicism by way of some friends I met in college. Today, actually, I was at Mass 
um, uh, participating in the sacrament of acceptance, actually. So I'm in this RCA program in a Jesuit parish up in Denver. Um, and <laughs> I really appreciate um, the specific reading that this order provides with the Bible. Um, like the Jesuit, like homilies <laughs> sound a lot like Marxist lectures some of the times um, where they, you know, where, you know, where they name, you know, capitalism and all these other sort of like things going on. And I find it to be very interesting because I don't have a lot of that baggage of like being a kid who went to Sunday school and didn't get to play outside or something, or it was, you know, made to read the Bible a certain way or made to, you know, think and experience religion a certain way or faith or spirituality in a certain way. So I didn't have a lot of these sort of like loaded experiences. So I was able to come to it in a very uh, new way and was able to accept like nuance and um, approach it the same way I might read like, you know, um, any philosophical work, something. Um, so <laughs> that's sort of what I brought up in contrast, like having a lot of that baggage, you know, so to speak. That's cool. That freedom's helpful. Um, that's cool because then it still shows how like potent this approach is, even for those without the baggage that we need to be healed from. It's cool. Thank you. And you gave me a, a lot to think about, Tyler, and I really appreciate it all. Um, and even just that whole idea of dancing with the Bible, uh, because I think so much of my experience has been like there's a question or an issue or a problem and like the answer is this chapter this verse mm -hmm. and it's and it's instead to engage and like ellen it's like i just kind of like i'm so tired of trying to explain away the 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 misogyny that i just shut my bible like i just mm -hmm. walk, walked away from it because um, it wasn't life giving to, I didn't know how to pray with it, but, but you've given me some images. So I'm very grateful. Thank you. No, I feel that that's as a queer person. Once I finally acknowledged that, okay, maybe the Bible was a little homophobic. I like became free to enjoy it again. Instead of being like, well, no, that's not what it's saying. Like, let's, I'm like, okay, it kind of is saying that, but that's okay. Like let's dance with it then. Well, I'll share my email in the chat if anyone wants to get a hold of me and explore more. I am happy to lend out these books to anybody here in Kansas City, too. My library is a library for others and not myself. Any of these books behind me, too, if you're curious. But um, thank you uh, to the leadership and all of y'all present and watching on Facebook um, for joining in this conversation. This has been one of my favorite nights in a long time. So, yeah, thank you.